Wonderful. Well, happy Easter, everybody. I, I really meant it. Let's try that again. Uh, <laughs> happy Easter, everybody. Awesome, man. It is so good to see you guys. And, and man, you guys look really good this morning. In Medina East Campus, we clean up pretty nice. So you guys look wonderful. And hey, if you're a guest with us this morning, or if you're just joining us or haven't been with us in a while, uh, we are so, so, so glad that you're with us this morning. And you really, you came on an awesome Sunday. Um, not only, of course, because it's Easter, uh, but in addition to that, because today we are starting a brand new series that we are calling No End in Death. And uh, we oftentimes say that a new series is an amazing opportunity to kind of get connected to the church. And so if you're trying to figure out what is this campus all about, what is this church all about, is this a place that I can call home, uh, we hope that you would lock in for this entire series and uh, get a chance to investigate with us a little bit. Uh, Let me tell you a little about the series that we're starting today. So uh, the series is called No End in Death. And basically in this series, what we're hoping to do, the the kind of the premise of it, is we want to address head-on one of probably honestly the most difficult And one of the most commonly asked questions slash objections uh, that surrounds the Christian faith. And so what we want to be doing with this series is we really want to be dealing with the question or the problem of pain and suffering. So that's what we want to be talking about, pain and suffering and loss and those type of things. And like I was saying, this question uh, or this problem or this objection is not new. Right? This, is a, this is a question that has been asked many different times in many different ways by many different people throughout the ages. But basically, if I could summarize what is the question that we're trying to deal with in this series, I would summarize it this way. You've heard it asked a million different ways, but this is the way that I would summarize it. The question is this. How can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? How can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? And so, as I said, this is a commonly asked question. It's asked in a lot of different ways. And my guess is that for all of us in this room, at one point or another, we have asked this question. Maybe for some of you, you're asking this question right now. How can a loving God allow for pain, suffering, and loss? Because here's the tension, right? The tension is that Christianity asserts that God is an all-loving, all-good God. And at the same time, Christianity teaches that God is an all-powerful God, that he can do anything he wants. And so that's a tension, because the tension is, if God is an all-loving, all-good God, then obviously he wouldn't want us to suffer. He wouldn't want us to go through pain. And if God is all-powerful, then why wouldn't he stop it? And so it creates a tension. It kind of creates a little bit of a dilemma. And so we want to spend the next several weeks investigating this question, because as you guys know, this question is not just a philosophical question, right? This is not just some metaphoric, hypothetical question that we deal with in an abstract way. This is a personal question. In fact, for some of you right now, you might be facing real pain, real suffering, or real loss right now. And you're not asking for an answer to this question in a philosophical way. You're asking for a personal answer because this is a personal question, right? And so we're going to spend the next several weeks, and we're going to be investigating that and kind of unpacking that a little bit and answering the question, what is the Christian response to pain, suffering, and loss, okay? But this week, as we begin this series, I actually want to start by backing up a little bit. And I want to ask what I think is a more foundational, more primary question, okay? So the question, what is the Christian response to, to pain and suffering and loss, is a really, really important question. It's one that we should ask. But what I want to argue today is that I believe that's actually a secondary question, that there is a more foundational primary question that we have to ask first, because how we answer this question is going to reveal to us whether or not this is actually a viable question to ask at all. 
You're like, what are you talking about? Well, let me, let me explain it this way. So my guess is that everyone in this room at one point or another has probably played the game of Jenga, right? We're all familiar with Jenga. If you've never heard of the game of Jenga before, um, I'll just briefly explain it to you how it works. I actually have a friend who made a large-scale version of Jenga, which is just totally cool. And I asked him if I could borrow this, and he was kind enough to let me do it. So here's how Jenga works, right? Most of us know this. Basically, you have a bunch of blocks. They call them Jenga blocks. And you set it up into a Jenga tower. And so this is sort of the original setup. And then you have multiple players. And here's the objection of the game. The, uh, the objection of the game is that each person takes a turn, and basically they try to find the loosest blocks that they can, right, somewhere in here. When you find a loose block, you take it and you put it on top of the structure and you build up and up and up until eventually the thing gets to a place where it's too high and then it topples over. And I actually didn't know this. Did you guys know this? That according to the official rules, when you play Jenga and the thing topples, you're supposed to shout Jenga. And you guys know that? I have never done that. Have any of you, anyone in this room shout Jenga? Just out of curiosity. Like two of you, right? <laughs> the three of you to shout Jenga. And so when I read that, I thought to myself, I'm going to start shouting Jenga right? And not just when I play Jenga. Like, when anything falls over or topples, I was like, Jenga, you know what I mean? Just imagine my kids running around the house, and one of them just totally biffs it, you know, wipes out, and I'm just like, Jenga, you know? It's like, complete, completely heartless, but really, really funny. Little homework assignment, Easter Sunday. Today, during your Easter celebrations, if someone drops something or something falls, shout Jenga, and then tell me about it, all right? So that's your homework, and uh, it's good. But Jenga, so we all know how it works, and, and really the strategy, the smart strategy in this game is that you want to try to find the loosest pieces, right? You don't want to deal with the ones that are, that are kind of stuck. You want to get the loosest pieces first, and you want to put them on the top. And the reason you do that, of course, is because the loosest pieces, even though they're a, a part of the structure, they don't bear any weight, right? The entire structure doesn't rise and fall on that one piece, and if you guys play Jenga, the other thing you know is the one row that you try to avoid at all costs, unless you absolutely have to, is this bottom row. Now, you don't mess with the bottom row. Why not? Because it, it's, it's foundational, right? The entire Jenga structure either, either stands or topples because of that bottom row. Now, if you have to, maybe you'll take out this centerpiece, right? Maybe. That's pretty risky. Or if you're crazy, like if you're just nuts, if you're loco, like mucho loco, you might take out these two side pieces, right? And the whole structure will kind of pivot on this one piece. But here's something you cannot do. You cannot take out the entire bottom row. And why? Because the entire structure is built. It is founded. The whole thing stands on that bottom row, all right? Now, what in the world does this have to do with our conversation today? Well, for the sake of our conversation today, I just want you to imagine that this entire Jenga structure represents the Christian faith, okay? So this is Christianity. And all of these different blocks that we have here represent all of the different issues and questions and objections that surround Christianity, all right? And so as you can see, there are a lot of issues and questions. And honestly, some people, there's a lot of objections as it relates to Christianity, right? So let me just give you an example. I'll just use one of the most common and controversial topics today as it relates to Christianity. A lot of people ask, what is the Christian perspective on sexuality in our culture? That is an issue within the Christian faith. What is the Christian view on sex and on sexuality? And that's kind of a hot topic today. And that's an important question. That is an important question as it relates to the Christian faith. Or here's another one, another controversial one uh, that's kind of relevant to where we are today. What is the Christian position on certain political issues? 
So right now, uh, the presidential uh, election and all the running is happening right now. And so we're, we're asking these questions. What should the Christian response be to some of these major political issues, right? And again, that's a really important question. Or we could talk about even more serious issues. We could talk about what, how could a loving God allow pain and suffering? That's a good, good, good question. And that is an issue within Christianity. But you see, here's what I believe. And I want to assert that all of these issues are important issues, but they're secondary issues, right? Um, there is a more primary, more foundational issue that we have to ask because the answer to those questions that I just gave you, Christianity doesn't stand or collapse based on the answer to those questions. So there is a more foundational question. There is a more pivotal question. There is a bottom row question that we have to ask first. And what is that question? Well, well, here's what it is. And my guess is you can anticipate it because it's Easter Sunday. Uh, But here's the question. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? That's the question. Or didn't he? Because, Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. That question is so pivotal. That question is so important because all these other issues and all these other questions are built on that premise, right? That, that question is so foundational that, listen, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then who cares what the Christian response on pain and suffering and loss is? Because that means that Christianity is a sham. All of Christianity will topple if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. Who cares what the Christian response to modern issues are or the Christian perspective on anything is? if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead. So the most important question, the most foundational question, not only to our conversation that we're going to have for the next several weeks in this series, but the most foundational issue in Christianity is this question. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead or didn't he? In fact, um, if you're a person this morning who's investigating Jesus, if you're like, I'm really not sure what I believe about the whole God thing or the whole Jesus thing, or maybe for you, you're not a church person at all. The only reason you're here is because your parents drug you out today, or maybe your kids drug you out today, or maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend drug you out today. One way or the other, you were drugged, right? That's how you got here. And, and, that's, that's how you, and, and if that's the case, my guess is that maybe one of the reasons that you, you have questions or apprehensions is because you have all kinds of questions about Christianity that you can't answer. You're like, well, what about this? And what about that? And I have this objection. And, and what about the whole sexuality thing? What about this? What about that? And you have all these questions about Christianity. If that's the case, listen, let me help you narrow your search. The only question that you need to concern yourself with if you're investigating Jesus, the most important pivotal question that you need to answer first is this one. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, then who cares about all this other stuff? But if he did, but if he did, well, that changes everything, right? And so what we're going to do today is, like I said, we want to deal with the question of pain and suffering in this series where I want to back up and I want to deal with this first question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? So we're going to investigate that together. And I want you to take your Bibles, if you got them, and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we'll investigate together by looking at this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. So go ahead, and get your Bibles and flip there, if you would. And, uh, and you can go ahead and do that. If you didn't bring a Bible with you here this morning, That is not a problem. We actually have some Bibles laid out there for you. Uh, They should be under those chairs or uh, in front of you. You can grab those as black Bibles. You're going to find 1 Corinthians on page 801. Okay, page 801. Let me just also say that if you don't own a Bible, flat out, you can just take one of ours. Okay, just take one. We want you to have a Bible. If you want a nicer Bible, uh, you can check the lost and found. I don't know. There might be something good there. (laughs) Grab that. 
All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're flipping to 1 Corinthians 15, let me just give you a little bit of context, what's going on. So the book of 1 Corinthians in the Bible, it's actually really not a book, it's a letter. And so we're kind of reading somebody else's mail. And so in this letter, a guy named Paul, who was a leader in the early Christian movement, is writing to a city, a place called Corinth. And here's what I want you to know about Corinth. The city of Corinth had a, had a culture uh, that was not very dissimilar from ours. It actually, in a lot of ways, was like American culture. So let me explain what was going on in Corinth. So basically, the city of Corinth was a big city. It was on the front lines of defining culture. So art and music and education and all of those things kind of flowed out of the city of Corinth. Uh, the city of Corinth was a place uh, that was ethnically diverse. It was a place that was spiritually diverse. It was sexually diverse. All kinds of crazy stuff was happening in, uh, in the city of Corinth. But in addition to that, one of the things that the Corinthians prided themselves in was they prided themselves in their learning. Very educated people. Uh, they were intellectuals. They were philosophers. And they would think of themselves as modern thinkers. And so one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul writes the Corinthians, he has a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons he writes them is because these people started to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They said, we don't know if we can buy that. Basically, they said this. They said, listen, we're intellectuals, all right? We're modern people. And so sure, maybe more primitive people could buy into this idea that a man rose from the dead, but we're thinkers. Come on. So we don't buy this whole thing, right? We can't swallow the resurrection of the dead. And so they said, well, basically, we'll take Jesus as a good teacher. We'll accept Jesus as, as a religious guru. But this whole, like, son of God, like, God up from the dead thing, like, we're not buying that at all. So you can see this culture was extremely similar to our culture. So the Apostle Paul writes them basically to explain to them the important and fundamental nature of the resurrection. He's like, guys, you got to get this. So let's take a look together. First Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start right in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you have been saved. And if you, heard, if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise, you have believed in vain. All right, so let me just pause there. I'll paraphrase. Basically, what the Apostle Paul says here, he says, listen, guys, let me remind you. So apparently, they've had some conversations in the past. He says, let me remind you about the foundation of your faith. Let me remind you about the, the, the non-negotiable, essential piece. Everything in Christianity is built on this. Otherwise, your belief is in vain. So let's go back to the basics is what he tells these guys. Then look at verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of, look at this, first importance. What I received, I passed on to you as a matter of first importance. If you have a Bible and you have a pen, underline that little statement. First importance. Here's what Paul says. He says, listen, what I'm about to tell you is a matter of first importance, right? In other words, you can't get this one wrong, all right? This is a pivotal, pivotal piece of information. You can, this is a non-negotiable. Everything rides on this thing. This is a bottom of the Jenga row issue. That's what this is, right? And what is this matter of first importance, Paul? Look what he says. For what I received, I pass on to you as a matter of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So Apostle Paul looks at these guys, and he says, you guys, this is a foundational piece. This is the most important question that you can ask. Did Jesus Christ 
rise from the dead because all of Christianity either stands or topples on that claim. As the most, is a matter of first importance. You got to get this, right? So Paul's stressing this to these guys. He's like, the resurrection is foundational. The resurrection is a foundational issue. But then the Apostle Paul is going to go on and say, not only is it a foundational issue, but he says it's a verifiable issue. The resurrection is a verifiable event. Because notice what he says in these next verses. Take a look with me at verse 5. So Jesus rose from the dead, and then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. It's another name for the Apostle Peter. He appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. By the way, falling asleep is just kind of a polite way of saying they died. So falling asleep in church today would be a bad thing, right? We don't want that to happen. So he says, some have fallen asleep. And then he says, and then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Okay, so, so let's just pause here because I want you to catch this. That little set of verses right there, the Apostle Paul gives us five witnesses that all testify to the validity and verify the authenticity of the resurrection. Now, those verses are really important because you and I, it's easy for us just to skim right past those verses and be like, I don't know, a bunch of people, I don't know, a bunch of events that I'm not real sure, and just read right past them and keep going. But I'm just telling you, man, if you were to look at those five different witnesses and you were to look at the backstory of each and every single one of them, you would come to see that these are un believably powerful testimonies of the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wish we had all day. I could just go one by one and explain to you the backstory of each one of these. Some of you guys are like, I don't wish we had all day. I have places to be, right? And I understand that. So for time's sake, I just want to talk about one. We could talk about all five, but let me just talk about one. And I just want to talk for a minute about how the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ in his resurrected state appeared to James. So let's just talk about James for a minute, because I believe James's story is one of the most powerful validations of the authenticity of the resurrection. So let's talk about James. All right, who is James? Well, some of you guys know this. James, that Paul's talking about here, was the brother of Jesus. He was the little bro of Jesus. Some of you guys are like, I didn't even know Jesus had siblings. He did. Jesus had actually many brothers. He had siblings, right? Jesus, of course, was the oldest, the whole virgin birth thing. And everything, but he had little brother, and James was one of those little brothers. Not only was James Jesus' little brother, he was a little brother who thought that Jesus was nuts. He thought that Jesus was out of his mind, and he was crazy for saying the things that he did. I mean, can you guys imagine having a sibling that thought they were the son of God, right? Some of you are like, I actually do have one of those, you know, and I will see them today at Easter, so pray for me about that, you know, and that's, but can you imagine that? James thought Jesus was crazy, he thought he was crazy. In fact, do you know the first time that James shows up in the Bible is in Mark chapter 3? And I'll just paraphrase it to you, but basically what happens, Jesus is beginning to preach and teach, and he's beginning to draw crowds to himself. He's starting to heal people. Jesus starts saying stuff that people don't typically say, stuff like, I am this God's solution to the human problem. He starts asserting things about himself that are just crazy about his authority and about his relationship with God. And as he teaches, the Bible tells us that he starts gaining popularity and more and more people come to hear Jesus. By the time we get to Mark chapter 3, the Bible tells us that Jesus is having a meeting at someone's house. And there are so many people pressing into Jesus that it was standing room only. They were blowing the walls out of this place. And the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 3 that the brothers of Jesus, one of which, of course, would be James, came to this meeting. 
But it's interesting. The Bible says that when they came to this meeting, they didn't run into Jesus' feet and drop down and say, you are the Lord of the universe, and we believe that you're gonna, you are who you say you are, and those things. That's not what they said. The Bible says the reason that Jesus' brothers came to this meeting is because they came to take custody of him, for they thought he had lost his senses. They thought he was nuts. I can only imagine what this meeting must have been like. You know, James comes in. He's like, sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. When his blood sugar gets low, he thinks he's the son of God. I don't know. It's kind of crazy, <laughs> you know. He's like, Jesus, get in the car. Get, Jesus, get in the car. You know, just get on there. I just imagine that happening. They thought he was crazy. And not just then. Not just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All through Jesus' ministry, the Bible tells us that Jesus' brothers doubted him. They doubted who he said he was. In fact, in John chapter 7, we are told that James and the brothers of Jesus even mocked Jesus for the claims that he said about himself. See, see, but here's the crazy thing. After the resurrection, James changes his tune. And there is a radical transformation that happens. In fact, did you know after the resurrection, the next time we see James, he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul says about James that he is a pillar of the faith. That's what the Apostle Paul says about him. And James himself, he actually writes a letter in the New Testament called James. And you know how he starts that letter? Here's how he starts it. Listen to this. He says, James a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? He didn't, he didn't start his letter off with, James, Jesus' little bro, you know? James, the brother of that guy. That's not what he says. He says, James, I'm a servant of that guy, and he is the Lord. And my question is, what in the world happened to him? What made James go from skeptic to servant? What made James go from, I'm not too sure about all this stuff, to, yeah, my, my big brother is the Lord of the universe. He demands all of my affection and all of my attention, and he alone is qualified to define and direct my life. What in the world happened to him? You see, he doesn't stop there, because history tells us that James actually was persecuted for this belief that his brother rose from the dead. And so at one point, the persecution got so severe, got so severe that the leaders looked at James and they said to him, listen, either you deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he is who he says he is or, and live or you, you maintain your belief and we will kill you. And history tells us, it records for us, that James looked at those guys and he said, I cannot deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And history tells us they took James to the top of the temple and they threw him off and they proceeded to stone him to death with rocks. And it's fascinating that Eusebius, one of the early church historians, tells us at the last moments of James' life while he was being stoned to death, he was praying to Jesus to forgive those who were throwing rocks at him. He was talking to his big brother. My question is, what makes a guy go from being a skeptic to a servant? What makes a guy go from being a hater to all of a sudden giving his life for this man, for, 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 this, for this guy who rose. For that. What causes that to happen? Listen, and I would submit to you that whatever it would take for you to believe that your sibling was the son of God is exactly what it took James. Because we all know this, right? We, we all know that it's hard enough already to fool people you don't know. But it is impossible to fool people that you grew up with, with your family, right? I, I was actually just thinking about this this past week. Last week, I was in the cafe and we were, me and my wife were there, and we were talking to a newer couple here at the church. And at one point in the conversation, they said, um, they said you, have, you have a really good memory. And, uh, and I started chuckling. And actually, it's kind of funny, because I don't even remember what we were talking about. That's how bad it is, you know? 
But I started chuckling because I was like, oh, that, and my wife was sitting next to me and she was just full, full force laughing, you know? And these people were like, what's so funny? And I'm like, oh, you just don't know me yet. I was like, when you get to know me, you'll come to realize I forget stuff all the time, right? And my wife's like, oh, yeah, all the time, right? And that kind of thing. And I'm like, I might be able to fool you for a minute, but I can't fool my family. And I would submit to you that whatever it, whatever it would take for you to believe that your sibling is the son of God is exactly what it took James. James wasn't looking to be converted. But so so what, what was it then that caused this transformation? Well, we know it, what it was because we're told right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what it is. Jesus Christ raised and he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the apostles. Then he appeared to 500, many who are still living. And then he appeared to James. Jesus, so cool. Jesus in his resurrected form set up a, a special meeting with his little bro. And I gotta tell you, I wish, I wish, I wish I could have been there for that meeting. I mean, you talk about your biggest I told you so moment of all time. Now, you can't help but wonder, did Jesus even say it? Like, cause he didn't have to. I just wonder if he just came in and he was just like, So, you know, it's like, whatever, dude, but <laughs> I was dead and, you know, not anymore, you know? Can't help but wonder. Or I wonder if Jesus did, like, did the big brother thing. Like, if he just walked in and started giving him noogies, and I was like, James, I told you I was going to raise from the dead, dude. You know, virgin birth, brother. You know, I wonder. That's what he did. I don't know. Or, or I wonder, maybe, maybe, like, uh, this is, I don't know, maybe this is the way I think of things. I imagine James is eating some chips or something, like, just sitting in the kitchen. And, uh, and then, like, Jesus just, like, shows up. And maybe James just like was so shocked and in awe that he just like dropped the chips, fell on the ground on his face before God just lost his footing and just fell. And Jesus is just like, Jenga, you know? <laughs> I can't help but wonder what that looked like. And here's the thing, here's the thing. We don't know. We don't know exactly what happened to that meeting, but here's what we know did happen. We know this was a pivotal turning point for James. And James went from, I don't know, my brother's crazy, to, no, my brother is the son of God. He is the ruler of the universe that demands all of my affection and all of my allegiance, and he alone is qualified to define and direct my life. See, and I would even argue with you this. I would say there is no other reasonable response when you're dealing with the resurrected Jesus. This man raised from the dead, that means he's uniquely qualified to direct and define my life in a way that no one else can. And James gave his life for this. And you see, that's just James. That's just James. We could talk about Peter. I wish we had all day. We could talk about Peter. Peter, who many of you guys know, was the loud mouth disciple. He had a big mouth. He had a little faith. And he denied Jesus three times. When Jesus went to the cross, he abandoned him. He was a coward. He was a coward. And you watch this cowardly man with a big mouth and a small faith before the resurrection. And after the resurrection, he is a different person. You see a boldness in Peter that did not exist before. In fact, at one point in the book of Acts, the Bible tells us that the same guys that crucified Jesus were looking at Peter and they were saying, you need to stop talking about the resurrection of Christ or something bad's gonna happen to you. And Peter said, respectfully, I will not be quiet. I cannot deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if you have to kill me because of that, then so be it. And it's funny because it's exactly what they did. And we're actually told that when, when Peter died for his faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, they were going to crucify him. And he said, listen, I am not fit to be crucified in the manner of my Savior. And so they crucified him upside down. What happened to Peter? What happened to Peter? We could talk about the disciples. All of them who were persecuted for their belief in the resurrection. All of them but one who died for it. We could talk about the 500 witnesses that he mentions here. He says, most of these guys are still living. In other words, he's like, you can go talk to them. 
They're still alive. See, when, when the book of 1 Corinthians 15 was written, it was only 20 years after the resurrection had occurred. That is not enough time to propagate a legend. That is not enough time to somehow develop a myth. That'd be like me saying, guys, remember 20 years ago, 1996, when such and such raised from the dead? You'd be like, no, he didn't. We were all around. You can go talk to my dad. You can talk to my mom. They were there, right? And, and, and Paul's like, you could talk. Five witnesses he gives. He, and, and so what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. This is powerful. Apostle Paul says the resurrection is foundational. He says, but it's verifiable. All right, when, 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 listen, when we're talking about the resurrection in Christianity, we are not talking about a metaphoric, metaphysical, spiritual abstraction. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about a historical event. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You see, if you're investigating Christianity, here's what you need to know. Christianity is not built on a code of ethics. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not built on a value system of beliefs of good and bad. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is built, it either stands or topples on this, a historical event that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then the Apostle Paul goes on and he actually furthers his argument. I want you to see what he says because this is awesome. Uh, Jump down with me to verse 12. Look at this. He says, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Remember, because a lot of these people were saying, we don't believe in the resurrection. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So you see what Paul's doing here? He's explaining the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. He's like, you guys, if we don't believe in the resurrection, he goes, that means that Jesus didn't raise. And what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that Christianity is built on a savior who can't save. That's what it means. See, Jesus Christ, when he was living, he claimed that he was the son of God. He said stuff that no one else ever said. He said things like, I and the father am one. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to my father except through me. That's what Jesus said about himself. Jesus proclaimed several times that he was going to raise from the dead. And so if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that means he's either a liar or he is nuts. And that means the whole Christian faith is built on a lunatic or is built on a guy who doesn't tell the truth. And so Paul's like, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have a savior who can't save. And then he says, and our preaching and our faith is useless. In other words, he says, we have a meaningless message and we have a futile faith. In other words, he says, this whole thing that we're doing is a colossal waste of time. Listen, you guys, this morning, what we are doing right now, right here, if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, this is a colossal waste of time. Why on earth would you get up on a beautiful morning like this and, cut and shove your kids into clothes that they don't want to wear and are going to get dirty by noon anyway, right? Survive the traffic, fight the crowd to come sit in this room and to listen to some, let's be honest, fairly attractive guy, right? Talk about some nonsense mumbo jumbo. Why would we do this? Do something better with your time. Go for a hike. It's nice outside for crying out loud. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, this is a colossal waste of your time. This is a colossal waste of my time. It's a colossal waste of all of our time, right? If he didn't raise from the dead. And then he goes on. Look what he says next. He says, more than that, verse 15 We're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. In other words, he says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, that means that no one gets raised from the dead. 
That means death has the final say. That means that death is the end. That's what it means. Pain, suffering, loss is all pointless. Then he goes on, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you and I, we're still in our sins. Our sins have not been forgiven, if that's the case. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, remember that means dying, they are lost. They are lost. Death has the final say. And then verse 19, I love this. This is such a good verse. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people, all men, most to be pitied. See what he says? This is, this is great, what Paul says here. He says, listen, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, this is a colossal waste of time. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. We have a savior who can't save. And here's what it means as well. It means that, it means that death has the final say. And it means that if you've ever lost somebody, that they're lost forever. There's no hope. It means that pain and suffering, all of those things are, are in vain. That's what it means if Christ didn't raise from the dead. I love how he says it. He says, listen, if the Christian hope is only for this life, if that's it, we're to be pitied among all people. In other words, we're pathetic if that's the case. Right? He's like, this, we're to be most pitied if all our faith is good for is this life, and that's it. We're wasting our time, is what he says. It's interesting. I was actually reading an article not too long ago by Dr. Phil. Uh, you guys know Dr. Phil, right? <laughs> it's a little bit, yeah, you, right, Dr. Phil. And uh, he was actually, he wrote this article about um, the benefits of faith. He was basically saying, why, is it, why should you be a Christian? What are the benefits of faith? So here's what he said. I'll just list a few of them for you. He said this. He said, people with faith live longer and are less likely to have a heart attack. People of faith have less anxiety and they have less stress in their life. People with faith suffer less physical pain. They're less likely to panic under pressure. And then a little note to parents, if you pray with your children and you're involved in religious faith, your children are less likely to get involved with drugs and underage sex. And I read that and I thought to myself, okay, yeah, I mean, that's all true. I was like, but um, aren't you forgetting some stuff? You know, like uh, the resurrection of the dead hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. Like, like Paul's like, if, if our faith is just in this life, if that's all our faith amounts to, he's like, find something else to do. It's, it's, it's pitiful if that's the case. We are to be pitied among all men. That'd be like me saying, just imagine for a minute that you and me and another person are in a conversation and this person has never, ever heard of a chainsaw. And they're like, why should I get a chainsaw? And I was like, well, let me give you some reasons. All right, here's the first one. Uh, first and foremost, it's, it's actually a really great arm workout. And so it weighs five pounds, and so you can just carry it around, and you can do some curls all day if you want to. In addition to that, it has a gas tank. And so if you're looking for a nice place to store gas, like an extra spot, you can put some gas in that gas tank, I guess. That's a wonderful thing you could do. And on top of that, it looks cool. So, so it'll be a great addition to your tools. You could just put it up in a display, and it'd be wonderful. Right? I'm listening. They're like, that's why I should get a chainsaw? Yeah, that's why I should get a chainsaw. Those are the reasons. You would be like, um, aren't you forgetting some stuff? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? You're like, well, like uh, the fact that it chops stuff down, right? Like the fact that that thing is stinking powerful and it can chop down a tree that is hundreds of times your size. It can mow down a forest. How about that? That's why you get a chainsaw. All that other stuff is like, yeah, okay, I guess if you want that. But it's all about chopping stuff down, right? And that's what Paul's saying here. He's like, so your faith is for this life and it, it lowers your cholesterol and it makes you a better parent. And okay, fine. 
That's wonderful. Pilates could do that for you, right? He's like, no, no, no. If that's our faith, because here's the thing. You guys know this. When you're standing at the graveside of someone who you lost, who you deeply love, a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, God forbid, a child, you don't need a faith that's going to lower your cholesterol, right? When the doctor tells you it's terminal and you're undergoing the third round of chemotherapy, you don't need to decrease your chances of heart failure, right? That's not the kind of faith that you need. When your spouse looks at you and they tell you it's over, you don't need a couple little things that are going to reduce your stress. That's not what you need. You need a resurrection. You need a faith that you could take to the bank that you know tells you that there is more than just this life and that pain and suffering and loss do not have the final say. See, that's why I love what the Apostle Paul says. And he concludes, we'll conclude in verse 20, he says this. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And by the way, for Paul to say that is a powerful statement. If you guys know anything about Paul, Paul, we go into his story too. Paul was not neutral on the topic of the resurrection. Okay, Paul vehemently opposed people who proclaimed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He killed them. He persecuted the church. And then one day, the Bible tells us he had an interaction with the resurrected Jesus, and he went on to give his life for this cause. He was beaten, and he was martyred as a result of it. And so he says this. He says, no, Christ indeed has been raised. And then he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning this, Jesus went first. No one else has ever done that before. And those who follow him will follow him in the resurrection. We will follow him into new life. See, here's one of the most amazing things that the resurrection tells us. The resurrection informs us that death does not have the final say. The resurrection of Jesus is a deeply profound statement. No end in death. And what that means is this. It means that whatever reason for suffering and pain and for loss, we might not entirely know. We might not entirely know. Not this side of the earth. The pain that you're going through, the loss that you're experiencing, the suffering that you're facing right now, we're going to talk about that in this series, but please, I just, I don't want to get you, I don't want to, to blindside you. I need you to know that as we go through this together, there's incredible things the Bible tells us, but it is possible that in this life, we may never fully know the immediate reasons why God allows certain things. But here's the thing the resurrection tells us. We might not know the immediate reason, but we know the ultimate outcome. We, the resurrection tells us that pain and suffering is not in vain. The resurrection tells us that death does not have the final say because Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And see, the disciples, when Jesus died on the cross, they were convinced that that was Jesus' greatest moment of defeat. Convinced. They thought it's over. We put our hope in a guy that's dead. So we have a savior who can't save. We have a message that's meaningless. We have a faith that's futile. We have a hope that's hopeless. And the Bible says they scattered and they ran away and they, and they mourned. But you see, the thing is, they didn't account for the fact that three days later, Jesus would raise and when Jesus rose from the dead, they came to find out that that moment of pain and suffering and loss in Jesus' life on the cross was not his greatest moment of defeat. It was his greatest moment of victory. And he redeemed it all because death does not have the final say. The, the resurrection tells us no end in death. Ask the band to come up and as they do and close our time out, I just want to end with a few thoughts and then, and then we'll be finished. 
I just want to talk real quick. If you're a person right now and you're investigating the whole Jesus thing and you're like, I don't really know what I think about all this. This is interesting. This is fascinating. I never thought about it like this before. But I'm not sure. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of questions. All right, that's great. That's wonderful. We're glad you're here. And, and, and listen, here, here would be my recommendation for you, all right? You have a lot of questions. You have a lot of questions. Those are great, but ask the first question. All right, let me help you narrow your search. If you're investigating Jesus, answer this. Did he rise from the dead or not? And I just want to challenge you. I dare you. If you don't know the answer to that question or if you don't feel convinced, then go find out. Go find out. All right, dig, probe. You can't afford to not know the answer to that question. If he didn't, then who cares? Who cares what the Christian response to pain and suffering is? Who cares what the Christian response to anything is? Because all of Christianity either stands or topples on that. So go find out. Read through the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do that. Investigate. I'll, I'll give you a good book recommendation. There's a great book that's out there called The Case for Christ. And uh, it's written by an atheist journalist who investigated the claims of the resurrection and came to a place like James where he said, I can't deny this. I can't deny this. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that means if he rose from the dead, he is the only one who is qualified to define and direct my life, and he became a Christian. Amazing book. Amazing book. I'd encourage you to read it. But listen, don't just let this hover. Go after it. I would encourage you to investigate with us in this series. Join us. You don't, you don't have to agree with everything we say to be part of this church. And we would encourage you to come and check that out. If you're a person right now who's saying, you know what, it's interesting I've never thought about it this way and things are making sense in a way they never have before. And you're like, and I believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he said he did. If that's the case, and listen, that means we cannot just leave Jesus as a good teacher. It means we can't just let Jesus be a brilliant mind or another religious guru. This, this, this says something about the credentials of Jesus and it means he's the only one qualified to be your savior and the only one qualified to define and direct your life. And for some of you, you're like, I have not been interacting with Jesus that way. Maybe for you today, for the first time, you turn yourself to Jesus and you say, you're the Lord. You're the Lord. And, and, and I've been defining and directing my own life and I need you to do that for me. You can surrender to Jesus this, this morning. It's not like there's a magical formula when we're worshiping and singing. Just pray, pray to God. I believe you're the Lord who rose from the dead. I believe you demand all of my life. And so I give it to you freely. You can do that. And for those of us in this room who have this hope, who, who have anchored our trust in Jesus Christ raising from the dead, well, that means we got something to celebrate, right? Because this is the cornerstone of everything that we believe. Everything rises on this. And so what I want you to do, if you've, accept, if, if you've already believed this and you've set your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to sing your heart out. Blow the lid off of this place because Jesus Christ rose. I don't care if your breath stinks. I don't care if you got a bad voice, right? The people around you might, but I don't. And so just shout it out that Jesus Christ has raised. Let's pray. Well, God, I just want to say thank you so much. You rose from the dead. Christ, if, if that didn't happen, this is a colossal waste of time. But Jesus, if you did, Jesus, because you did, our hope is certain, our faith is firm, and we know that death does not have the final say. Whatever the answer might be to pain, suffering, and loss, we know what the answer isn't. 
We know that it's not in vain. We know that it's not the end because the resurrection proclaims that loudly to us. And so, God, I pray that today you would fill us with the power of the resurrection. Father, help us. Help us to be able to follow you. And Lord, if you rose from the dead, that means that that demands a response. And so I pray that we wouldn't leave this question off in neutral territory, but that we would find an answer for those who are seeking. So God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for, for this, the pillar of our faith that you rose for us. I pray in Jesus' name.